You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Before we get started today, our small team here at the station would like to say thank you for supporting our growing news coverage and this podcast during its first year. We are listener-supported, nonprofit community radio, and we couldn't keep making Jackson Unpacked every week without you. We'll have a bonus regional housing episode out next week before Christmas, but otherwise, this is our last show of 2021. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in the new year. Coming up on today's show, the owner of Grand Targhee Resort participates in a town hall about the proposed expansion of the ski area, now under review by the Forest Service. It's not meant to just be like the locals' best kept secret. Plus, a conversation with Phil Leeds, the longtime and recently retired co-owner of Skinny Skis. The gear has changed a lot, but I would say, given the fact that it's been 40 some odd years, It really hasn't changed that significantly. But first, could a real estate transfer tax, something long desired by many in Teton County, finally be coming to Wyoming? The state legislature's Joint Revenue Committee voted Wednesday to sponsor a bill that would allow counties to opt into such a tax if the majority of county residents vote for it. KHOL's Will Walkie reports. Total real estate sales volume in Jackson Hole is expected to eclipse $3 billion this year. That's an astronomical number never before seen in the Valley. And while that activity is good in part for the local economy, Jackson Vice Mayor Arne Jorgensen says longtime residents often can't afford to live here anymore and that they're being pushed out of Teton County by out-of-state interests. They're outbidding whether it's a business owner, commercial property, or residential. And that amount of interest and that amount of activity in our real estate market, we just can't compete against. Jorgensen testified Wednesday before the Joint Revenue Committee in favor of an optional real estate transfer tax. A bill is now on the table that would allow individual counties to vote on whether or not to impose a 1% levy on local sales based on the property's value. Jorgensen says that redistribution of wealth, potentially a $25 million influx of cash per year, would allow Jackson Hole to build programs dedicated to keeping workers in the valley. Real estate is our coal. And this is a way for us to be part of the state in terms of revenue and to reduce the time that we're coming to the state and asking for assistance. There are some specifics that need to be ironed out during the lawmaking process. For example, the tax would only kick in for property sales over a certain amount, currently set at $1.5 million. But the state's revenue committee did decide by an 8-4 to margin to move the current iteration of the bill forward, sponsoring a tax of this nature for the first time in Wyoming's history. Representative Yen? Aye. Chairman Case? Aye. Still, the bill faces a long, difficult road to winning support from two-thirds of both the state House and Senate and finally becoming law. Plenty of state electeds and business interests oppose a real estate transfer tax, including Lori Urbekite, who testified Wednesday on behalf of the Wyoming Association of Realtors. Um, A lot of the real estate property that's purchased is purchased as an investment, truly. And so putting a sales tax on those investments is not equitable when we do not put a sales tax on stocks or or bonds or those kinds of investments when people sell those. Other skeptics question whether the money raised for towns and counties would even help solve housing issues rather than just keeping those funds in the private sector. 
But Dale Steenbergen, president and CEO of the Greater Cheyenne Chamber of Commerce, says he's in favor of simply letting actual residents of these communities make the decision themselves. Why in the world would we not want a local government to have a tool to send to their people for a vote of their people and their people say, we want to raise our taxes so we can live in a better place. Other resort areas, particularly in Colorado, already raise millions through similar taxes. The Teton County Board of Realtors has not yet taken a position on this bill, which now moves on to the full state legislative session early next year. Will Walkie, KHOL News. The major players involved in the proposed expansion of Grand Targhee Resort held a virtual town hall Wednesday night. The meeting marked one of the first times resort owner Jordy Gillette has spoken publicly about the expansion since Targhee officially submitted its request to the U.S. Forest Service in 2020. KHOL's Kyle Mackey tuned in and brings us the latest. Much of the town hall focused on making the distinction between the two master development plans in place for Grand Targhee. The resort's privately owned base area is subject to oversight from Teton County, Wyoming. The ski terrain itself is located on Caribou-Targhee National Forest lands, and that's who's reviewing the current proposal for new on-mountain development. An interdisciplinary team of Forest Service specialists uh, aided by the third-party contractor, as well as our cooperating agencies. We're using scoping information that was provided site surveys, and resource analysis to guide the preparation of a draft EIS. Don Dressler of the Forest Service is leading the interdisciplinary team working on a draft environmental impact statement, or EIS, that will evaluate Targhee's proposal. The team includes representatives from both Teton County, Wyoming, and Idaho, because, of course, Targhee is only accessible through Teton Valley. Resort owner Jordy Gillette says that's a complication he recognizes. We're in Teton County, Wyoming, and, you know, the bulk of our, like, our community is primarily Teton County, Idaho, and it's where pretty much all of our workforce lives. The guests spend money there, and, um, and there's also impacts there. Still, Gillette countered the argument that's been expressed by some opponents of an expansion, that the resort should stay within its current boundaries and not bring in about twice as many skiers in. It never has been intended to be, like, a marginally stable resort catering primarily to Teton Valley people. Um, it's not meant to just be like the locals' best kept secret. Gillette also says his ambitions for expanding both the base area and mountain terrain of Targhee have been publicly available in master development plans since 2011. But GIS specialist for Teton County, Idaho, Rob Marin, says there's been complacency around the Targhee plans including by his county. I think a lot of locals had, had heard all these base area master plans for years or different iterations of a master development plan. And not much had happened because of economic you know, situation uh, with the boom and the bust. 
And so I think a lot of folks just didn't get engaged in that. Either way, area residents are definitely engaged now. Wednesday's meeting drew a crowd of about 130 online attendees who were able to chat in their questions to Gillette and other speakers, but not make public comments. Chair of the Teton County, Idaho Board of Commissioners, Cindy Regal, says there will be plenty of chances for that later. This is not that opportunity. We're just trying to clarify the complexities of the project, the history of Grand Target Resort, and what it might look like as we move forward. More information about the proposal and EIS process is available at grandtargiresorteis.org. A 90-day public comment period will also open once the draft EIS is published, which is now expected sometime next spring. Kyle Mackey, K-12 News. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, in the 44 years that Phil Leeds owned Skinny Skis, Jackson and the outdoor gear industry have changed a lot. Leeds recently retired as co-owner of the iconic sporting goods store, and KHOL Executive Director Emily Cohen spoke with him to reflect on his long career and what he thinks has made Skinny Skis such a successful local business. Congratulations on your retirement and this next chapter in life. Well, thank you, Emily. It's nice to be here. So you've seen Jackson Hole and the retail industry change a lot over your career. I want to take a moment and talk about both of those things. Well, obviously, everybody, I think, in the Valley has seen, has been here for a few decades, like I have, has seen a number of changes. The community-mindedness, I think, is as strong as it's ever been. It was a big component back then, you know, in the 1970s and early 80s, and it still remains strong, and you can see that in participation with nonprofit groups, the the number of nonprofit groups, and things like old bills. The way to conduct business has changed markedly. I mean, this is all pre-computers, pre-digitization. So back in the uh, late 70s, communicating with companies was primarily done through with sales reps at trade shows and over the phone or mail. Um, so the way we conducted business and the relationships we built were so different. Uh, the gear has changed a lot, but I would say, given the fact that it's been 40 some odd years, it really hasn't changed that significantly when you get right down to it with whether you're talking uh, Nordic ski equipment, uh, running shoes, camping and backpacking gear. I mean, the changes have been uh, you know, substantial, but when you look at other things in our life and how things have changed with, especially with technology, those components largely, you know, they evolved, but it wasn't like a, a complete game changer. Do you have any thoughts on the forecast for the industry, the outdoor gear industry? I think the last couple of years with COVID has even modified things even more. And there's been an evolution going on uh, with digitization and B2B 
And uh, certainly with the internet and people's ability to find products online 24-7 or visit stores or kind of hybrid kind of models, um, that has been evolving for 20-some-odd years. Um, but it was increased, I think, markedly, some of these elements just in the last year or so. And when you got involved with Skinny Skis originally, what did you seek to do? Did you have any sort of end game in mind? Uh, yes and no. I enjoyed business. I was an economics major in college. I met uh, my partner, Jeff, in the early 70s, uh, working up in Grand Teton National Park. And he described uh, opening the business in 1974. And we remained friends. And I joined him and another fellow in 1977. In that time frame, when I was still in college, I was given the opportunity to manage a ski department in a sporting goods store in California where I was in college. So I kind of had the best of both worlds, being able to uh, study economics kind of by morning academically, and then virtually every afternoon uh, managing um, a ski department in a sporting goods store. So kind of getting the practical side as well as kind of a theoretical. Any advice for a small business owner just starting out now? Maybe advice that you wish you had gotten when you were oh. a newbie? <laughs> I think uh, understanding the community that you're, you're serving is of the utmost importance. I mean, um, I think it's very challenging for somebody from outside, whether you're an REI size business or whether you're a ma and pa kind of business, you know, coming into an area for the first time. But if you've had a pulse of the community for uh, years, if not decades, and you really understand where the community's coming from, and then you try to meld that with your idea about something that you feel is kind of missing in the community, whether it's a service or a product line, you, you'll have a much greater chance of success for bringing the two together and really honing in on what you do. People have choices um, in their day-to-day purchasing, whether it's outdoor gear and clothing or other uh, aspects that you know, of products and services. And so it really forces businesses like Skittisies to hone in on what they do best and um, communicate super well with, with the community that we're involved with. I think it's the same in radio. Who's our audience? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Phil Leeds, thanks for joining us today and best of luck in this next chapter. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Just before the Christmas season officially begins, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans celebrate the Day of the Virgin of Guadalupe on December 12th. The holiday commemorates the appearance of the Virgin Mary to an indigenous man living in what is now Mexico City back in 1531. Next, K2L's Will Walkie talks to Spanish language correspondent Alicia Unger about this year's celebrations in Jackson. And then we'll hear Unger's full story in Spanish. Alicia Unger, as always, thank you so much for joining KHOL in the studios today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about this story and the holiday that you're covering that's really important for the Latino community here in Jackson? 
The Day of the Virgin of Guadalupe is one of the most important holidays for the Catholic community and the whole Latin America. Virgin of Guadalupe is considered the mother of the America. And from there, the Catholic Church recognizes her, and every year, Mexicans and people around the world celebrate her. Here is not an exception. So the Latin community got together and celebrate her on December 12th. Can you go through a little bit what actually happens during the celebration, which has obviously been going on for a long time? Yes. This celebration happens in Our Lady of the Mountains Church. It usually starts with a congregation of people who walk around the town. They go to the rodeo. They pray and come back to the church for a mass. The mass, I will think, was over or around 700 people. It is a big holiday for the Catholic uh, Latins. And they all are very grateful. They believe that she, uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe has um, given them miracles, the miracles of health during this pandemic. So you produced a sound-rich piece for KHOL, as always. Um, I'm curious who you got to talk to for this particular story when you were sort of setting the scene for the listener. Yes, uh, well, I got to talk to the uh, community who believes in her. Um, I got to talk to the uh, administrator of the church who explained me what's, what was going to happen. And it also struck me or surprised me to see a couple of Caucasian family join the, the, the celebration because they have a mass in the morning that is just for English-speaking people. So after the mass, they leave. Not many people stay around to celebrate as the Mexicans do. And um, there were a couple of families who stayed there and enjoyed the, the Latin community. That's, so that was very nice. Um, this, uh, this walk that they do through the town, they do it with mariachis. And they're all songs dedicated to the Virgin. So people sing, pray while they walk. It's, it's very, very colorful. Alicia, do you celebrate this holiday yourself? Are you Catholic too? I am. I do celebrate the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe. And that's the beginning for our Catholic celebrations in winter. Um, with the Virgin of Guadalupe anniversary, um, that's the first one. And then on December 16th, we're going to celebrate for nine days the posadas. Then we celebrate Christmas. And then we celebrate on January 5th, the arrival of the three Winston kings. So, yes, we have a long holiday. It's three weeks of celebrations and family gatherings, people cooking. It's all part of our ritual. Alicia, thanks so much for joining KHOL. We'll now take the listener to your story in español. Gracias. Thank you. KHOL Noticias en Español. Lo saluda Alicia Anger. En el aniversario 490 de la aparición de la Virgen de Guadalupe en el Cerro del Tepeyac de la Ciudad de México, el pueblo de Jackson se unió para celebrarla. 
pues el 12 de diciembre es una fecha muy especial eh, para todos nuestros feligreses aquí en la iglesia, um, porque se celebra pues el cumpleaños de nuestra Virgen. Tan importante que de acuerdo a Lisette García, administradora de la Iglesia Católica Our Lady of the Mountains, la celebración comienza con una peregrinación aún bajo temperaturas gélidas. Vamos a dar un recorrido um, hacia el rodeo, Um, en el rodeo vamos a parar, va a haber un altar en el rodeo, eh, vamos a hacer unos rezos, unos cantos y después vamos a marchar de nuevo a, a la iglesia. Las ráfagas de viento con nieve que calaba hasta los huesos no detuvieron a la familia Morillón, a quienes el amor y el agradecimiento por la Virgen Morena aseguraron les brinda calor en sus corazones. Sí, es un día muy importante entre nosotros la comunidad latina, especialmente para mí. Sobre todo durante la pandemia por el COVID-19 y sus variantes, que parece estar lejos de terminar. Para nosotros es muy importante la Virgencita y le agradecemos todos los días todo lo que nos da. El recorrido fue entonado al son del mariachi América de Utah, quien de acuerdo al director de la banda, llevan años viajando desde Salt Lake City hasta el condado Titon en Wyoming para cantarle a la Virgen Morena. Tras la peregrinación, llegaron alrededor de 700 personas a la misa, en su mayoría oriundos de Tlaxcala, México, y entre ellos una familia anglosajona que mostró la misma devoción por la Madre de América. Al festejo de la Virgen del Tepeyac en Jackson no podía faltar los manjares que, según Mercedes Ahumada, promotora del arte culinario mexicano a nivel internacional, se preparan como parte del ritual que se ofrece a la Reina del Cielo. Eh, nuestra cultura prehispánica está, por supuesto, muy presente. Entonces vamos a encontrar platos basados en la cultura del maíz, como tamales, eh, muchísimas bebidas, como los atoles, pero también eh, platos diferentes que son un, el resultado de la mezcla de dos culturas, ¿no? como por ejemplo el cerdo, porque junta todos estos elementos importantes, ingredientes nobles, historia, tradición, pero además unión familiar, y que además siguen siendo eh, un plato o un elemento ritual dentro de la gastronomía y espiritual. Rituales gastronómicos que se llevan a cabo por tres semanas más en la cultura mexicana. El aniversario de la Virgen de Guadalupe fue el preámbulo de las fiestas católicas. Nueve días de posadas, la Nochebuena Navidad, hasta el Día de los Reyes Magos, el 5 de enero. Pues eso es algo muy bonito, que, que gracias a ella, gracias a ella me, me hizo ser padre. Y así, con el corazón henchido de emoción, Edgar Bautista da las gracias a la Virgencita del Tepeyac por el milagro de la vida. Diego, ya que es el más chiquito y es el por parte de la Virgen, le quise dar ese nombre, ya que es muy devoto igual él, cada que venimos a misa y eso se pone a cantar. Feliz Navidad, próspero y saludable año 2022, les desea Alicia Anger en KHOL, Noticias en Español. Now for the weekly news roundup. 
Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. Numerous wildlife advocates attended a Teton County Planning Commission meeting Monday to testify in favor of imposing stricter land development standards in an effort to reduce human-bear conflict. The problem is we are baiting both grizzlies and black bears into our neighborhoods by having unsecured trash and other food attractants. It's amazing to me that a human has not yet been seriously injured or even killed by a bear or other large mammal here while they protect human food sources. Proposed amendments include prohibiting feeding of all local wildlife, upping requirements for bear-resistant trash containers around the county, and asking for better fencing and protections around gardens, bird feeders, livestock feed, and other areas frequented by bears. After extensive technical difficulties, the Planning Commission had to continue this discussion to later in the month before deciding whether or not to approve or deny these proposed changes. After that, they'll be passed on to the Board of County Commissioners. The Wyoming Cancer Coalition is asking the state's cancer survivors to participate in a survey about patient needs both during and after treatment. The goal of the survey is to better serve state residents affected by cancer in the future. Adults aged 18 and older who have received a cancer diagnosis in the past six years are specifically encouraged to give their feedback. A link to the 10 to 15 minute long survey is available at wyomingcancercoalition.org. A $270,000 settlement will be paid to a former Teton County student who alleged the local school district ignored and disregarded her reports of being sexually assaulted back in 2017, according to reporting from the Casper Star Tribune. A lawsuit filed last year claims the now former student, who has not been publicly identified, was discriminated against by school staff, administrators, and other students after she accused a classmate of raping her. The case has now been closed following the settlement, but prosecuting attorneys say this doesn't erase the extreme trauma their client endured when she was just 14 years old. An eastern Idaho rancher is trying to bring greater meat processing capacity to the region. The beef, poultry, and mutton industries are growing in the Teton and Madison counties in the gem state, but actually turning those animals into food on the dinner table that's increasingly becoming a challenge for folks. Food systems educator for the University of Idaho, Jennifer Worland, said during a local food and farm coalition meeting Friday that nobody would bat an eyelash if a new facility came online tomorrow. I don't think that it is going to be any sort of competition. There's more demand than there's actually like facilities and infrastructure at this point. Um, we just need more. We need more of it. People are driving hours and hours just to process their animals. To make matters worse, the main U.S. Department of Agriculture facility in Rigby, Idaho, that usually handles local independent ranchers, was recently bought out by Smiths and won't be doing that anymore. The rancher interested in bringing a new facility to the region is currently scouting locations across eastern Idaho. She's also gauging community interests on both sides of the state line as she figures out capacity, scheduling, and permitting with the USDA. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.